Hey, welcome to BTS Podcast. This is your host, Lene Cook. As you may have noticed, uh, this episode warrants a trigger warning. In this episode, we do discuss sexual assault, rape, and uh, matters of that nature. So if that is something that you are not in a place to listen to today, I completely understand. Feel free to skip to the next episode or the previous episode if you are that accurate and on it of a listener. I really appreciate my friend being on this podcast. I've chosen to leave her name out of it just because she also has a unique name and I don't really want to like put her in a position of, um, I don't know, being overwhelmed. It's a lot. If things change, I may update the intro and include her name, but out of respect for her, I just decided to leave it out um, so that she, I don't know, is given some space. And it's also one of those things that as much as I would love if we were not in this place in society, we are in a place in society where people can look up your name and when you have a unique name and it's easy to find and you're applying for jobs, this may not necessarily be something employers can think past or move past or whatever. We all know that there can be some pretty significant backlash when people look up your name and it's easily searchable for things that are not positive and work-related, even if you're the survivor. Anyways, all those words aside, I do appreciate you listening. If you would like to support this podcast, please do use my promo code for Soothe. Soothe is great. You can get in-home massages. You can use code LZLRZ to save on that. You can also save on Hotel Tonight. Use code LCOOK61 to save on your first hotel booking. Hotel Tonight has absolutely lovely hotels around the world, and the more you book with them, the more you save. I'm on, I think, level four of their rewards plan or whatever, and I get really great discounts on hotels, and I love it. Thanks again for listening, and I hope that you learn a lot from this episode. Um, This is a good friend of mine, and I am just really grateful that she was willing to share her experience in pressing charges against the person who assaulted her. Hello and welcome to BTS Podcast. This is your host, Lene Cook. In case you skipped the intro, which by the way is rude, there is a trigger warning in there and that is because this episode, if you also skipped reading the title, is about pressing charges against the person who sexually assaulted you. So we talk about the behind the scenes about that. So if that is something that you are not ready to hear, um, totally understandable. I just wanted to give a second trigger warning. And also listen to the intro because that has the information to support this podcast, which is greatly appreciated. Also, before we jump in, I do want to say that this is one person's experience and point of view and should not be viewed as a representation of all sexual assault survivors. So because of the heavy nature of this episode, um, typically I end this podcast by asking people what is a subject that they would want to hear a future behind the scenes episode on. That feels like a weird ending to this episode. (laughs) So uh, my guest today is a friend of mine, and you can say hi. Oh, hi. (laughs) Hello. Hi. (laughs) Um, And so what is something, so you know the subject of this podcast. We talk about the behind the scenes of clearly anything. Usually it's people's jobs, what they do, where things come from that we engage with every day. And I would venture to say, given the statistics, um, we do actually engage with uh, survivors of sexual assault every day, and we just don't know it. Um, So this is a behind the scenes on the process of the aftermath of that. We won't be digging into what happened unless it's um, relevant to the case, just so listeners know that. Um, But 
what would you like to hear a future episode on? Me? Yeah. Oh. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I like the, I mean, I feel like you do a lot of business focused, you know, how people, you know, come to do what they love and find their passion. But I just think it's important to stay with people's passions and how people, you know, started and, you know, your whole world can get flipped upside down in a day or a week or however long. And it's inspiring for me to hear other people's stories on how they overcame hardships and stuff so that we can all kind of just band together and like live in a good world. (laughs) Totally. Um, So just to like repeat that back to you, like anyone who's gone through something super traumatic and then like kept plugging or like changed their dreams or like, you know. Yep. Okay. It just like, you know, made them who they are and why they do what they do today. Totally. (laughs) Uh, Great. Noted. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, I mean, this is a tricky thing to start on because I, uh, I guess we should start sort of like at the beginning after what happened. Um, So you were raped. And then, you know, a lot of people who are survivors of sexual assault um, don't report what happened yep. uh, and maybe never report it or report it and then aren't taken seriously. So what were sort of the next steps after that happened to you? So I didn't know next steps when it happened to me, which I feel like is one of the biggest issues um, surrounding just rape culture and what happens when someone's sexually assaulted. Um, I actually uh, went home to my roommate, and my roommate um, called her mom and asked her mom what I should do, and her mom told her to take me to the emergency room, and that never would have been my first, you know, instinct to do. I wanted to go home and take a shower and just crawl into bed and go to sleep, Um, but she took me to the emergency room, and I was there for about four hours um, doing the rape kit. Um, They did the whole, you know, pictures, like scrape your fingernails, take your hair, like follicle samples, um, you know, run the whole thing, which is pretty traumatizing after you go through something like that. You know, the last thing you want to do is be poked and prodded and (laughs) inspected. Especially by strangers. Yes. Yeah. Um, So I was there for about four hours and I was able to go home. But it was just one of those things where I'm so happy that I was around the surrounded by the people that I was surrounded by that could help me to figure out what the ne- next steps were because mm-hmm. it's not something that's ever talked about. Which I guess, yeah. I mean, unless you uh, binge watch Law and Order SVU, <laughs> which guilty, <Yeah>. um, <laughs> you just really. And also when you're in that that moment of, like, immediate trauma aftermath, mm-hmm. of course, like, government-recognized next steps right. are not what comes naturally to anybody, no. presumably. Yeah, I mean, because, like, a lot of, you know, what people assume is if you're going to go to the hospital, then obviously you're going to have to report it. And mm-hmm. then the police are going to try to do something about it, and people don't necessarily want those to be their next steps. Um, and luckily, 
those the people that helped me made it very clear that I had a choice all along and that it was up to me to continue to make the choice. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just kept pushing on through. <laughs> totally. So then then what happened? I so my it was my sophomore year of college. I was almost done with the semester for the summer. I called my mom when I was on the way to the emergency room and I told her what happened and she hopped on a plane and flew to Montana and she helped me pack up my apartment in about a week and a half and we went to, I got a great um, victims advocate assigned to me from my college um, who was very helpful and she helped me get in touch with an investigator and um, we did the whole Title IX setup, you know, kind what of. Does that just, mean? <laughs> so Title IX is basically a protection law um, for. It was put into effect for sports, so that basically girls had the right to participate in sports like boys did. Hmm. Um, and so with Title IX at my school. They basically, that's where you would report any assaults, harassment, anything like that. And then they take that case and they investigate to make sure that the school is safe. So So why was it done through the school and not like the city PD? So it was done through the school because he was a student. Okay. Um, So they, we had a school police department as well. So they got involved, but they weren't, it was very, you know, classic college handling a rape case, mm-hmm. basically, was the police were like, oh, this happens all the time. Technically, it didn't, my my assault wasn't counted as a college, ass- I don't know the word. That's okay. Um, so, like, they, they will do, like, a count of how many sexual assaults are on campus every year, and they have to report it. And mine is never reported, even though it was students to student to student, because it wasn't on campus. Mm. It was at another a house off of campus. So, when that happens, the lines get kind of blurred, where the college police are like, well, it didn't technically happen on campus so there's not a whole lot that we can do about it Mm -hmm. but the school obviously is like he's a student and he's endangering other people so we need to do what we need to do to investigate and make sure that everything is you know checking out and that everyone is safe Mm um so i the title nine case that i did took three years oh my god yeah and there's a limitation, I think, of uh, three months. And once the three months is out, they can throw the case out. Limitation, like once the tr- once like the case starts. Yeah. If it's not handled within three months. Yep. That is wild. And is that specific to like that county or that state? It's the Title Nine law. Title Nine is a federal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So how did you avoid having it thrown out? Or was that just like by luck? I was very lucky with the people that I came across. Um, I very much recognize that people don't have the support 
and the team that I had. And I, you know, feel like I need to give a lot back to the people that chose to believe me and help me and stick by my side because there were people that could have very much given up and thrown it out and Mm -hmm. they didn't, they stuck with me. So the whole time, I mean, there was so many days where I just wanted to give up, you know, I just didn't want to deal with it anymore and I just wanted it to go away. But I would look at all of the people that, you know, stood by me the whole time and I was like, I can't give up because they're not giving up and they're here to help me. Yeah. And, and I imagine too, I mean, just knowing that somebody like when you're the survivor of that sort of thing, you're the one who is then burdened with that trauma. Yeah. And knowing that that person is out there and could just do that to any other person and keep living their life and whatever, um, I imagine was also, you know what I mean? There's like also that fear of like, oh, and then what, I'm going to make somebody else go through this whole thing again. But I, yeah, that's, so in that three years, like what, like what else are you doing with your life? I moved back in with my parents I continued going to school. Uh-huh. I, but not at the same school. No, it was a different school. Yeah. Um, and I just tried to carry on with my life as normally as I could. Yeah. Um, it was really hard to adjust to being in a situation that I didn't choose and that I didn't have the control totally. over. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it was a lot of figuring out where I was meant to be and why I was put there. And, you know, I was very angry. I had a lot of emotions to deal with. Totally. Did you Um, go to therapy? Yeah. I had a great therapist that I saw twice a week. I did um, both EMDR therapy and then just regular therapy, which was really helpful. Um, Mm -hmm. And, I mean, that was probably the best thing that I could have done. Um, and then I also, I did a lot of paddle boarding. (laughs) I'd just go like lay in the water and just paddle board and it was so calming, you know, it was like really important for me to find things that made me feel grounded and, you know, kind of get back in tune with my body. I did some yoga. They like recommend doing yoga after you're assaulted because it kind of helps you to get back in touch with yourself and your body and, you know, kind of manage all the feelings and take a lot of control like yoga is something that um when you're doing it there's so much balance and like I had a yoga instructor this last week who said something that I'd never thought about where he was saying um like the thing that they're focusing on this month at like Seattle yoga arts is where I started going Mm -hmm. is um like your core which whatever I mean I'm vain I always think the core great I'll have great abs afterwards (laughs) right like that's (laughs) that's where I'm at um But he said something really beautiful that I'd never thought about before, where he was like, you know, all of our, like, whenever we have really traumatizing emotions, Mm -hmm. um, whether it's heartbreak or, you know, like other sort of traumas, it all really happens. It makes us sick to our stomach. You know, we say, I have a pit in my stomach. I feel sick to my stomach. I'll sometimes say, like, my stomach's in my throat, you know, Um, and it hurts our heart. And, like, all of that is core stuff. Yeah. 
And so he was saying that it's, you know, it connects um, all of our sort of like appendages, but also our upper half to our bottom half. Mm -hmm. And how by working on our core and like opening it up and then like closing it up, it enables us to be more flexible in that area that gets um, sort of just like messed with most by our emotions. And I'd really never thought of it that way before. And like how by opening up your chest and closing it, you're like allowing yourself that flexibility and going like reassuring that body confidence and internalizing like, okay, I can get back to being complete again. Right. And I was like, oh, this is so much better than all these like, you know, like millennial yoga classes I've taken that are just focused on like whatever it is, sweating a lot. Yeah. Um, so I think that even if you don't go into yoga knowing that sort of knowledge, there is something that you do internalize from being able to control like small movements and right. being having more awareness in your body. You know, like, I don't know if like uh, you get like adjusted in yoga because mm-hmm. I really like that when they yeah. like, fix your posture where you're like, oh, you're right. Like my hip was not dropped. Yes. <laughs> Um, so the, did the people outside of your immediate family, did the people at your school and stuff know what you were going through? Yeah. So there was people, um, at the house when it had happened, um, who didn't really end up being the most supportive. They ended up taking his side or just completely disappearing. Wow. Um, so that was hard. I felt really alone and, you know, um, friends that I had grown up with and known didn't know how to react or, you know, were like, well, that happened to me too. What's the big deal? Wow. And yeah, so it was, there was a plethora of reactions, you know, whether mm-hmm. it be positive or negative. It was just, I, the best way to describe it is just kind of like a tornado, you know, it's just like a tornado of all of these other people throwing in there. Oh, well that happened to me too. And this is my story. And well, why don't you do this? And why didn't you do that? And maybe if you did this, then this wouldn't have happened. Right. And you know, it was just like all of those, like, stereotypical like guilt you yeah, know victim and, blaming yeah and it was just it that was probably the hardest thing to overcome totally there was um as I told you before we started recording I was listening to terrible thanks for asking on my way over here with um a woman who goodness I want to say her name is Sarah she's in Minnesota uh her ex-boyfriend raped her And she was sharing her story, and she's become, like, a huge advocate for rape survivors and, I guess, has, like, a Facebook group where people share this and, like, um, and, you know, an almost, like, AA format meeting, except for, like, not anonymous, and people go in and, like, share their, that, like, that's what they went through. Um, And there were a few notes that I took from that and questions that I got from that. um, And one of them was, like... On this particular episode, they were saying, uh, like, silence is easy, and in silence feels a lot like apathy. Mm-hmm. And so when people are quiet, you know, I, I truly believe most people are quiet because they don't know what to say. Right. And they recognize that, which, in a way, I respect. <laughs> like, yeah. to a degree, fine. Yes. Um, <laughs> at the same time... I think we all know any insecurity we have throughout our lives when people are quiet about that subject, Mm -hmm. we fill in the blank with what our insecurity is, right? Right. 
And so in the situation of someone who's been assaulted, when people are silent, you fill in the blank with what you've seen with other people, which is like they're not on your side. Right. And that's really hard. What is there anything that like you heard people say that you found was particularly just like, if not helpful, <laughs> at least better than silence? Um, I mean, even like a funny meme or, you know, like a memory yeah. on Facebook or, you know, I, even like people commenting on my dad's a photographer, so he likes to post pictures of me, you know, so people like, you know, commenting and, you know, thinking of you guys. And I have been very open about my story and everything that's happened to me since the night that it happened. Mm -hmm. I think the first time I met you, I think it was like after two weeks or something totally. that I told you my story and yeah. why I ended up where I am. Right. Um, so it was one of those things where I was like, you know, even if you don't know what to say necessarily about the assault, like you don't need to say anything about that. You know, you can say, hey, missing you or I'm thinking of you or like how are you doing and people will respond to that you know yeah totally and that was the hardest thing was trying to explain to people that like I'm still human yeah you which, know you know what I was actually <laughs> I was doing some writing leading up to this because yeah. I did want to make sure that I was asking like questions that are useful for someone who's listening like whether they have been through this or they know someone who has um, because I think it is a gray area where people just don't know how to respond yeah. and everybody's so different. So that's, that is one of the reasons why I started this episode saying that like what you have to say is not representative of everyone's feelings right. because I mean, like I even think on, um, so on episode 19, I had on Amy Cunningham, who's a funeral home director. Mm -hmm. And I love that she said that she always just tells people I'm here for you. Yeah. Because we do all have such different responses. And I, rem I remember when my grandfather passed away and people kept coming up to my grandmother, who English is not her first language, and, so, and she's a linguist. So she speaks like probably six or seven languages, and she has a lot of criticisms about the English language. Yeah. <laughs> One of them being that when someone goes through something, we say, I'm sorry. Yeah. And I remember her snapping at like a friend of hers, <laughs> which is like also horrifying when you see like an older person snapping at, like, an even older person. Yeah. Like, she snapped at, like, this, like, nice, like, 80-year-old woman. And, like, my grandpa was, like, in her <laughs> early 70s at the time. And she was, like, you know, this person comes up and is, like, oh, I'm so sorry. And she just snapped them and she yelled at them, like, why did you kill him? Yeah. Which, my grandfather was not murdered. Like, yeah. he died. Yeah. Uh, like, like, you know, health issues. But when she said that, I think people just don't know what to say. And I think... Um, Oh, God, I forgot where I was going. <laughs> Let me well, read my notes. Oh, no, no, you can go ahead and talk. I will. So I read, um, I'm totally blanking on her name, too. Oh, I go, remember what go. I was going to say. Okay. <laughs> One, two, three, got it. Um, so what I wrote was, uh, sometimes it feels like people want the survivors of sexual violence to be more broken mm -hmm. because it's easier to understand and it feels more actionable from the outside because people, if they see that someone who's gone through that is broken, mm -hmm. it gives them something to potentially fix. Right. Um, but it also does exactly one of the things that I'm always butting up against, which is reducing people to one-dimensional beings. Yeah. 
And so I think, and, and I've even thought about this um, when I've had people close to me pass away or like when my grandmother wasn't doing well while, you know, while you and I were working together because mm-hmm. we met through work. And I thought like, oh my God, like how do I go back to work after this thing happened? Because yeah. I can't stand pity eyes is yeah. what I call them. Like, yeah. like I'm still, just because something bad happened to me, it doesn't make me not a person. Right. You know, just because it's, and it's the same thing when I've been dealing with depression, it's like, I don't want to be around people and feel like they're all walking on eggshells. Yeah. Like, I'm still Still a normal person. Fully capable of living. Totally. (laughs) And, like, the fact that when you're, when you've gone through something that is that um, traumatizing, and I think specifically um, with sexual assault taboo. Yeah. um, People aren't used to talking about it, which is one of the reasons why I asked you to be on the podcast, and I'm so grateful you were open (laughs) to it. Um. But people aren't used to talking about it. And unfortunately, I mean, I would love to say let's not normalize it. But unfortunately, it is normal. Yeah. Like most of us as women have been assaulted in one way or another, Mm -hmm. if not raped. Yeah. So what's abnormal, though, is that like if that many of us are getting assaulted, that means there's that many people out there assaulting people. exactly. And they're not walking around getting treated... Yeah. Any differently? Like they're broken. Right. <laughs> when like they're the brokenest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. I I mean that was the biggest like realization that I had because I felt so alone, you know. I as far as I knew out of my group of friends um was the only one that this had happened to. Mm-hmm. And I was like what am I supposed to do? I don't have anyone to relate to and you know it was a lot of like older people coming to me and saying, you know, like that happened to me and, you know, and seeing them, you know, like move on with life and get married and have kids. And, you know, I was stuck in such a point where I was like, how do people even do that? You know, like how do you move on from something that is surrounded your life and consumed like all of your energy every day for my case lasted for four years. Wow. So it consumed my life for a long time so what was like what took so long (laughs) everything um so back to title nine I had to do a there was a lot of like interviews and back and forth witnesses were not being cooperative with the investigation. They had a hard time bringing people in and, you know, getting statements from people. Lawyers got involved, which then, like, affidavits were signed and statements were changed, and it was just all this back and forth. Um, I basically just had to play along with the game. I My dad would always say, you know, I mean, they're going to, they were going to come up with whatever crazy conspiracy that they could on the defense side right. to see if anything would stick so that he could get out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, the whole time it was just like, uh, just the voice in my head was just like, you know, you you know your truth and you have to stick to your truth and, like, that's all that matters. And so I did the Title IX hearing came up, which was a Skype interview that I had to call into. And that was the first time that I had seen the perpetrator since the accident, the accident, the event. (laughs) So wait, you all 
Skyped? Yeah. So they were all in Montana mm-hmm. and I was out of state. Right. And so we all Skyped and basically I was questioned and witnesses were questioned and he was questioned and they came back a day or so later with the verdict that they had found him guilty. Mm-hmm. And so they kicked him out of school, which was a huge accomplishment. Because and how long did that take until that happened from the time of the assault? I think it was like two and a half or three years. So he had just been attending school this whole time? He, I don't know exactly if he had kept going. Okay. Um, but, I mean, he could have... Yes, been going to school. Wow. Yeah. Um, so he got kicked out. And then, which was a huge deal because I think it's like only 3% of Title IX cases actually get prosecuted. I think at the time that was like the statistic. So it was like very slim. Which wasn't that many years ago, right? That was No, like- it was 2015-16. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, which it probably honestly is still the same. Right. Yeah. I don't imagine (laughs) climbed dramatically. No. Um, and then he successfully enrolled in another school, just meaning that he didn't check the box that he had been kicked out of another school. Got it. Um, he went to another school out of state, so they didn't do a background check or anything. So we knew he was at school wandering around at another school and I mean the whole reason that I followed through with the case was like you said I didn't want it to happen to anyone else and if Mm -hmm. I could be the one to prevent it I would go through that and I would do it all over again to Mm -hmm. make sure that like other people are safe from Mm him. Um, So after that I was also doing the legal case which was more horrendous because of the detective um, that was assigned to my case, he was just harassing me and victim blaming me and, you know, telling me it was my fault and I should think long and hard about if I really want to press charges because I'm probably not going to, like, see justice and if I was his daughter, he would tell me not to press charges and just move along with my life. So I really, like, all along the way was you know, being deterred from pressing charges. And can you file a complaints against detectives like that? Yeah, so he, there was like a last straw where finally we were just like, he's not helping at this point, he's only hurting. So he got kicked off of my case, mm-hmm. um, which also was a big accomplishment because it was like a small town where there wasn't that many choices of detectives. Right. So he got kicked off and Basically, the case just moved forward from there. Um, And then it was, I, we were scheduled for a trial in August of 2017. Mm -hmm. And I had just graduated from college. Mm -hmm. And I went on a, like, two-week study abroad trip to South America Mm-hmm. And I knew when I got back that I was going to have to do this trial. And I was thinking about it, and I was like, there is no way in the, in the time that I am in this position that I would be able to 
convince 12 people of what had happened to me in a red state. Yeah. <laughs> so I chose for him to take a plea deal instead. Okay. Um, for criminal endangerment. So he doesn't have any rape charges against him, mm. but he has criminal endangerment. What does that mean? Oh, I don't know the definition. Um, <laughs> I just So he won't be on the list is what you're saying? Yeah. So he's not like a sex offender. He couldn't register as a sex offender or any of that. Um, but he has it on his record that he was in, uh, that he is charged with criminal endangerment. Mm -hmm. So we went to court in December of 2017. Yeah, it must have been. Yeah. We met in 2018. Yeah. And um, he, I had to go face him in the courtroom and I, you know, it was like the most surreal thing to, you know, yeah. you're sitting in a, in a victim's advocate office, you know, that you have to be buzzed into and it's, you know, you kind of feel like a zoo animal <laughs> just because of, you know, the way that the security, you know, just to make sure that you're protected and that nothing's going to happen. And I had to go sit up there and testify which was probably the hardest thing that I've ever had to do because I was one of those kids that if I had a book report would skip school and pretend to be sick because I was not going to stand up in front of people and talk. So mm -hmm. the fact that I had to like go stand up and defend myself and confront this person that did this thing to me was, it was very cathartic I guess to be able to say what I finally like needed to say and mm -hmm. get the words out that I had been feeling and the disappointment from the people that turned their backs on me um and I think it was only like an hour-long court court case that happened and we the judge found him guilty of criminal endangerment which basically meant that he was going to be taken into police custody and evaluated to see where he would be placed next, whether it was in, like, prison, jail, or, like, a mental, you know, just, like, go get mental help at some, like, mm -hmm. therapy center or something. And so I got to watch him get taken away in handcuffs. And he, I had anticipated that he would maybe be in jail for two months, Mm -hmm. And he ended up being in jail for a year and three months. Mm -hmm. um, he was just released, I think, in March okay. of this year. And how, how did that feel for you? I, it was like a mix of emotions because when I like first got the news that he was getting out, I, you know, it's immediate, you're, immediately you're like, what am I supposed to do? Like, do I get a restraining order? Is he going to come after me? What do I have to worry about? You yeah, know? of course. Um, and I talked it through with my advocates and my family and went to therapy about it to try to figure it out. And I um, basically came to the realization that I am living my life and I'm sure that he is ready to move on with his life mm -hmm. and to keep 
you know, doing what he's doing. And I'm hoping that he, you know, is better and got the help that he needed. Um, but I honestly, I didn't even realize the day that he got out, I didn't even realize that it was the day. How liberating. I know. And after all of the time that I sat around and, you know, what if I did this and what if I did that to actually realize, oh, like, I didn't stop and think about it today. Right. Was probably the greatest, like, part of knowing that I am healing from it. Right. Because I spent so much time, like we said, you know, feeling so broken and, like, people were going to look at me differently and blame me for what happened. Yeah. So... So when something like that happens to you, um, especially with what you experienced with um, having so many optional witnesses who mm-hmm. chose to back out, that can really sort of tear whatever trust or faith you have in humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, what has helped you like rebuild that that trust or any degree of trust in people? I think that... Yes, it was disappointing that those people turned their back on me and that they didn't help to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. But having the people around me that do love me and care about me and seeing how much they, you know, picked me up and made sure that I was doing everything because it was true to myself Mm -hmm. and I wasn't doing it because I felt like, I was being forced to do it. Right. Made it a lot easier to forget about the people that left. Totally. Yeah. One thing that, when it comes to victim blaming, one thing that I was thinking about that's so insane because, you know, I think anyone who has been assaulted, as women, the first questions were asked is like, what it, well, where were you and yeah. what were you doing? And like you mentioned before, right? Like, well, were you drinking and stuff like that? And I think it's so, I think for a long time, I thought that was normal because I grew up hearing those sorts of things. And it wasn't until probably the last few years that I, I mean, at some point much earlier, I for sure realized, like, that's not okay. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until recently that I just sort of realized, like, the absurdity of it. Because, like, people, like, when your home is broken into, or, like, when you get in a car accident. Yeah. When you get in a car accident (laughs) and you're like, oh, yeah, this person hit me. Nobody's like, well, did you hit the brakes really quickly? (laughs) You know, nobody's like, well, did you make sure your brake lights were on? Right. And how that is like, (laughs) it's just wild. That was, so part of my healing, the, like the, my year anniversary after the assault came around and I was like, I need to do something. I have been dealing with this for over like a year now pretty much like with my close family and friends. And I want other people, you know, coming from a small community, I want other people to know that this happened to someone that they grew up with and, you know, they went and to played soccer with. A normal person. Right. Who's still being normal. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I wrote a blog and Mm -hmm. I 
part in the blog I wrote about how I could walk down the sidewalk and get hit with a baseball bat and get knocked out, and the police would come running, right. and they would put the, whoever hit me with a baseball hat, baseball hat, <laughs> baseball bat, <laughs> in handcuffs, and we do you know do something about it. Right. And the fact that the most appalling thing when the assault happened was I was at the hospital and there was n the police were never called there was never a detective called into the room to take a statement to you know figure out what happened where I was and because I didn't call the police at the scene when it happened they technically couldn't um, go and arrest him so, wow. yeah, so they said, they told me that if I would have called after it happened, called the police of the house, that then they could have arrested him. But I decided to leave. Which, which who wouldn't? Right, which is, I mean, that's probably the safest call to make. Right. When I, totally. you know, the situation that I was in, I was like, I need to get out of here. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it was like very... It's, I mean, it goes back to, you know, the things that people need to know and what to do if these things happen. You know, there should be a, like you, I mean, I don't want to say should. Well, people just shouldn't be raping people. Yeah, I mean, yes, exactly. <laughs> it comes down to that. <laughs> yes. But, I mean, it's important to know yeah. that you, you can get a rape kit done. You can go to the hospital and you can, you know, get swabbed and scraped. <laughs> it doesn't right. sound nice. <laughs> You're really selling it. Yes, I know. Um, redo. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so you can go to the hospital and get a rape kit done. You can call the police. Mm -hmm. Well, but you should do both of those things, right? Is what it sounds like that you yeah. you should probably. I have a hard time putting a should a should with it. Well, I only say that I agree with you. I think I'm saying should from the perspective of um, to not, especially if you're in like you were a small community where they yeah. were very quick to victim blame. Yeah, where you can really protect yourself. Yeah. By doing those things, but even if you do mm -hmm. take that those steps, sometimes it doesn't it doesn't totally. prevent yeah. you, the blame or you know it's really you know yourself best and right. you need to make the call for yourself and whatever you choose to do is what you choose to do and you know since I've wrote my blog, I have had so many people reach out to me and you know, tell me their story and share with me, you know, their experience. And I've had people come to me and say, I've never told anyone before, but like, you know, it's inspiring to know that like other people are talking about it. Mm -hmm. And even with the Me Too movement, you know, I mean, it was such a key moment in my case because it really started to evolve and change and be talked about and understood on a different level yeah. when I was going through my final court hearing. Right. Because it was a part of the public discourse at that yeah. point versus, which in a way, I mean, 
as horrible as it was for you to have to deal with that for four years. Yeah. In a way, I do wonder if the result would have been different if it would have gone to court. Right. Almost right away. Because that wasn't part of the public conversation at that point. No. And it wasn't... Um, it wasn't as socially taboo then as it is now to victim blame. Right. Yeah. Especially if you're in a small town. Yeah. And, yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think that's all the questions. Let me look over my notes real quick. Oh, one more question. Yeah. Um, you've been very open with me about this. Yeah. It sounds like you were pretty open, especially, like, with that year uh, mark of... Mm-hmm with the blog. Um, how has your openness in your own like internal and external dialogue shifted around this over time? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I, I feel like I've become like a more optimistic person. I have a lot of empathy for anyone going through any trauma. Mm -hmm. I really feel like it's so important that you know, I I don't think it's fair to say that any trauma is the same. You know, no yeah. two trauma is alike and to be able to share my story with people gives me the ability to also understand other people's stories mm-hmm. which I really value and appreciate and you know being able to be someone that helps others to process and guide I guess during a trauma is really rewarding to be able to be the help to someone that I wish that I had Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just from being from a small town and, you know, having someone that I had a lot of support, luckily, and I'm hoping that I can be the support for anyone who doesn't have any other support. You know, I want to be that one person that, like, people know that they can come to me mm-hmm. and I will, they can confide in me and I will help them in any way that they need me to and make sure that you know, they're healing in a way that's right for them. So Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you for being on. Thank I really you. appreciate it. So fun. It. <laughs> yeah, right. what I love it. <laughs> I could talk for hours. <laughs> well, we do sometimes. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Hashtag BTS Podcast. I know that that was heavy. Um, it is, I don't know, it feels weird to record an outro on a heavy subject and not sound somber, but, um, this is also a lot of people's lived experiences and like we talk about quite a bit in this conversation, I would venture to say that most people who have gone through being sexually assaulted don't want to be treated like victims or just like, uh, like pity eyes and things like that. So I think it's also fair to say that, um, as mentioned, the terrible Thanks for Asking podcast called Unbroken was really great, where Sarah, I believe is the guest name, was saying that people do expect sexual assault survivors to be more broken than they are. And that is not necessarily, in fact, it's not at all. Um, 
like it's not up to survivors of assault to live up to other people's expectations of what that looks like. So in light of that, that's why I don't sound somber because it feels like counterproductive to the overall sort of um, message of the podcast. I appreciate you listening. Music on this podcast is by Benjamin Batherum. And I hope you have a lovely day. Uh, take a bath to relax if you need to after this. Bye.